The last investigator I met with was Dr. David Peerboom, who began our conversation by presenting a 60-year-old woman from his practice with an unusual CNS tumor. This was a 60-year-old engineer, a very high-functioning woman who was in excellent health until she had a generalized seizure in her sleep. So woke up her husband. They came to the emergency room. At that time, imaging showed a mass in the left temporal lobe. This was an enhancing lesion. It was subsequently resected. The pathology was an anaplastic oligodendroglioma. Chromosomes were evaluated, and it was found to be 1P and 19Q co-deleted. Could you just kind of go back and review what an oligodendroglioma is, what it is pathologically, and how it fits in the whole spectrum of gliomas? Sure, happy to. So to start with, when we talk about the classification of gliomas and the WHO classification, there are four grades of tumors. Grade one and two are low grades. Grade three and four are high grades. Grade four being glioblastoma. Anaplastic lesions, one of which is the anaplastic oligodendroglioma, is a grade three glioma. Now, gliomas in general come in either astrocytoma, oligodendroglioma, or mixed tumors. And how does that reflect in terms of the cell of origin? Well, the cell of origin, the oligodendrocyte, is one of the stromal cells in the brain. The significance of that particular cell as a cell of origin is that it separates out a group of tumors that is uniquely sensitive to chemotherapy and to radiation therapy. So the clinical relevance is that this is a group of patients with high-grade gliomas who can live for years, even a decade or longer after their diagnosis, which is distinctly different than the vast majority of patients with high-grade gliomas. And just as a side point, you know, I've heard people question the term malignant glioma and the quote, all gliomas are malignant. Do you buy into that? Very much so, because, you know, every once in a while, we'll see a patient who comes to us with a low-grade glioma, having been told that their glioma was benign. And in fact, that's not the case, because all low-grade gliomas eventually progress to high-grade gliomas. I think of it as somewhat analogous to a low-grade lymphoma or an indolent lymphoma that if a patient lives long enough, there's a high likelihood of it transforming to a more aggressive lesion. With low-grade gliomas, it happens in essentially 100% of patients. So I never call them benign. Now, what was the significance of the 1P19Q deletion? Well, back in the 1990s, a group from London, Ontario, led by Greg Cairncross, discovered that there was a subset of their patients with anaplastic oligodendrogliomas who had a particularly long survival and a particularly good response to chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And when they looked into it further, they discovered that the common thread for these patients was the deletion of 1P and 19Q. Now, they found a host of other chromosomal abnormalities in this subgroup of patients, but the group that stood out were those patients whose tumors had an isolated co-deletion of both 1P and 19Q. Now, in the past two or three years, the group at the Mayo Clinic actually discovered that this co-deletion is mediated by a translocation of 1P and 19Q. 
At this point, the function of that translocation is not yet understood, but it explains why the co-deletion occurs. So what happened with this woman? So this patient did a lot of research, and she decided at that time, actually she was 50 years old at the time, she's about 60 now, but she decided that she did not want to receive radiation therapy. She was concerned about her cognition, her continuing in her career was very important to her. And she just, she told me, you know, I want to be me. So I don't want radiation. So what we did at that time is we used chemotherapy alone. And we treated her with a regimen that at the time was a fairly standard regimen called PCV or procarbazine, CCNU, and vincristine. And we used an intensive form of it with somewhat higher doses than usual because she was excellent performance status. And this was a regimen that had been used in some small trials. So she started that therapy, had severe both hematologic and non-hematologic toxicities, and we ended up having to stop that regimen. And so what we did at that time is we switched to temozolomide, which was at that time not widely used, but we completed a course of one year, and she remained free of progression until 2005. So that was a five-year progression-free interval. What happened in 2005? So in 2005, she had progression radiographically. She was still free of symptoms. Her seizures had been controlled. So she was free of symptoms, continuing to work full-time, and still felt that she did not want to receive radiation therapy. And given the excellent response she had had, we thought, well, that's very reasonable. And we tried other regimens. So she received, over the years, cisretinoic acid, imatinib, hydroxyurea, and a host of other regimens with variable lengths of control of her disease. So she had continued to be free of symptoms, although radiographically had progressed, and just three months ago started to have some right-sided focal seizures. So having been through approximately eight different regimens, including bevacizumab, by the way, we recommended radiation therapy. And at this point, she agreed. So she received radiation therapy and is now about two months out having finished that. She feels well. She's not having any seizures, and she's going about her business. I think what this points out is a couple things, the first of which is that the patients with 1P19Q co-deletion do have a particular sensitivity to chemotherapy and to radiation therapy. I think the selection of therapy for such a patient is still a matter of controversy, but probably the main point is that this is a group of patients with high-grade gliomas who do not need to have radiation therapy at the time of diagnosis. And although there have not been trials that have looked at cognitive and quality of life issues when we take one approach or the other, I guess my own bias is in a patient like this would be to delay radiation therapy. And when she finally did get treated with radiation therapy, what type did she receive? She received external beam radiation therapy 
by the time of going into radiation, her tumor had spread quite a lot. She had received bevacizumab, and one of the features of progression of disease while on bevacizumab is that there tends to be a very infiltrative pattern of progression. And so this necessitated a fairly wide field of radiation, but nonetheless, she received it and at least so far has done well with it. What do we know about bevacizumab and oligodendrogliomas? You know, there is little data on bevacizumab in this particular tumor type, but it certainly has been used widely in high-grade gliomas. I don't think there's a role for it in low grades, but I believe that patients with high-grade glioma certainly benefit from it. We know the data, we know the efficacy and the FDA approval of bevacizumab for patients with recurrent glioblastoma, but I think that it's also widely used for patients with progressive anaplastic or grade 3 lesions. What happened when this woman got the Bev? She initially had an excellent response to therapy. She actually had minimal symptoms at the time, but had a very nice radiographic response. Her tumor was growing into an area where she was at risk for communicating hydrocephalus. And so it was for that reason that we wanted to do everything we could to shrink her tumor. And at the time, having been through multiple other regimens, our feeling was that bevacizumab would give her the best chance of a radiographic response and shrinkage of her tumor. Now, you mentioned her concerns about the effects of radiation therapy. A lot of times when I ask people about this or I try to read about it in their studies, you know, it's really hard to kind of figure out what happens with the time sequences, how it varies with the area radiated. What's your overall gestalt, and what do you say to a patient, educated, intelligent woman like this in terms of, you know, what the chances are of various types of problems? Right. Well, I tell patients that the short-term side effects are fatigue, dry mouth, skin dryness, uh, buildup of fluid and wax in the ear. But the real issue that comes along, as you point out, is what is the cognitive toxicity? Most of the data regarding cognitive toxicity of craniola radiation comes from two settings. One is the pediatric literature in which we know that craniola radiation can be devastating for a kid who's growing up. And I think everybody agrees that we try to not do that when we can avoid it. The other body of evidence comes from patients with brain metastases, in which patients with whole brain radiation therapy actually some decades back, were treated with high daily fractions of radiation therapy in the order of three to 600 centigrade daily. Now, patients who received those kinds of daily fractions did have approximately 11% rate of dementia attributed to the radiation therapy. Subsequently, however, we're using lower daily fractions. The rate of cognitive toxicity is less. So I think whole brain radiation therapy for brain metastases is certainly safer than it used to be. Now, trying to extract to gliomas, the situation is different in a couple respects. First of all, it's not whole brain radiation. It's fairly well focused. And I think this is an area where it is important to have a radiation oncologist who does nothing but treat brain tumors, if possible, at a center of excellence. 
So depending on the area that's treated, the toxicities will be different. So for instance, if the hippocampal region happens to be in the field of radiation, there can be significant memory deficits. On the other hand, if it's you know one frontal lobe with a small tumor, then the cognitive toxicity is likely to be much lower. Are there clinical trials out there evaluating treatment for this tumor? There are actually two very important large randomized trials for patients with anaplastic gliomas. And now the terminology is starting to evolve. We talked before about anaplastic oligo. We talked about anaplastic astro and anaplastic mixed. Well, the newer nomenclature now is anaplastic glioma, and they're either 1P19Q co-deleted or they're not. So we've separated this entity, that is the grade three gliomas, into two large subgroups. And so the clinical trial which has recently been activated, an international clinical trial. One is for 1P19Q co-deleted patients, and this will randomize patients to one of three regimens, the first being temozolomide alone, second arm is radiation alone, and the third arm is going to be radiation plus temozolomide. So a three-arm trial that I think is going to teach us a lot about how best to treat this group of patients, and they'll be followed with neurocognitive batteries. So that's the group of the 1P19Q co-deleted patients. The other clinical trial is for patients whose tumors do not have the 1P19Q co-deletion. And in this study, there's a two-by-two factorial design. So the first randomization is between radiation versus radiation temozolomide. So the patients go through that, and then they get randomized a second time to temozolomide or no temozolomide. So this study is asking the question of the utility of temozolomide during radiation and the utility of temozolomide after radiation. And I think that this is going to have important implications, certainly for the grade three patients, but I think it'll potentially lead to similar clinical trials for patients with glioblastoma. Why don't we talk about your second patient, the 28-year-old man? So this is a 28-year-old man who started to have headaches at age 15. And over the month prior to his presentation, his headaches became worse. They started to become localized over his right eye and eventually came to the emergency room. Imaging at that time disclosed a right frontal mass. He underwent a resection of that lesion. The pathology was glioblastoma. Now, this was 2004. He was subsequently entered on to our clinical trial of radiation, temozolomide, and erlotinib. And he went through that regimen, did very well, continued on the erlotinib per protocol for about two years, and then finally elected to go off the erlotinib. And we followed him, and he did well for another six months. And then he progressed. And he subsequently has been on several additional regimens of chemotherapy and is now on a clinical trial of tandutinib and is doing well on that regimen, leading a normal life, you know, being a good dad to his kids and working every day. What do you consider the important teaching points of this case? So I think there are a couple things. One, 
It's a glioblastoma in a young patient. And I think that these patients have a different prognosis and a different biology of their tumors. And I think it's important for people taking care of these patients, if they don't take care of a lot of brain tumor patients, to realize that the younger patients can have a substantially better prognosis. And I think it's important to be aware of that in taking care of these folks. So this is a patient whose history suggests that he had a low-grade glioma years back and that his lesion progressed to a glioblastoma. And this is the phenomenon of what's called a secondary glioblastoma. Biologically, this is different than what we call a primary glioblastoma. The molecular markers are different. The secondary glioblastomas rarely have amplification of the EGFR. They rarely have mutations of the P10 gene, and so they behave differently. So that's, I think, the main thing to be aware of is these different biologies. Can you talk a little bit more about this man's headache history? I mean, he had headaches for more than 10 years. What was the pattern and what happened? So he just had these chronic low-grade headaches since he was a teenager, and these were not like increased intracranial pressure kind of headaches, no nausea, vomiting, no neurologic symptoms of any sort, just headaches like probably 99 out of 100 people with benign headaches, very similar. And we see actually a number of patients, it's actually striking a number of patients who come to us having been treated for migraine headaches for years. And this is not uncommonly, for instance, a young woman who will present with such a history, and then at a certain point, their headaches get worse, and then they get imaged. Do you think that in some cases, maybe, for example, in this man, that actually the headache history might be unrelated, or do you think this actually was related? It's hard to tell, Neil, but we see enough patients whose headaches from the history just does not change in its character. It changes in its intensity. But, you know, a patient will come to us and say, you know, I've had these migraines all my life, but this just seemed to be getting worse. It's no different in its features, its pattern, but it's just worse. And it raises a difficult issue. And I wouldn't want to suggest that every young person with headaches should be getting MRIs, because I don't think that's the case. But I think it just speaks more to the biology of these tumors, sometimes having a long natural history of what seem to be typical headaches before they progress and probably suggesting that they have a low-grade glioma that eventually transforms. Let's talk about your 51-year-old person. Okay. This was a 51-year-old landscaper. He, in 2008, began to develop headaches and over the ensuing months, they waxed and they waned. But eventually, he started to develop, in addition to the headaches, right-handed weakness and also a right visual field cut. So he was imaged and found to have a 7-centimeter left occipital mass and was able to undergo a gross total resection. The pathology here was a gliosarcoma. So, uh, Hold on. Yes. Gliosarcoma? <laughs> gliosarcoma. All right. Um, Actually, gliosarcoma is a small subset of glioblastomas. We treat them the same way, but they happen to have a more spindle-like morphology. But basically, they are 
a subset of glioblastomas, rare, comprising probably a few percent, maybe up to 5% of glioblastomas. So he went on a clinical trial of radiation temozolomide plus a PARP inhibitor. And unfortunately, six months into that, he ended up having progressive disease. He subsequently went on a clinical trial of tandutinib and unfortunately, again, progressed just a few months into that regimen. So he was having more neurologic deficits, and so we recommended bevacizumab. So he went on bevacizumab, had improvement of his, he had right-hand weakness and spasticity again. So that improved on bevacizumab. However, he then came back to his hometown clinic. So he was found to have a pulmonary embolus. He was hospitalized. And because he had this history of a malignant brain tumor, he had an IVC filter placed, and he was not anticoagulated. So he came back to us still quite short of breath and feeling miserable. So the point of the case, there are a couple points. One, it has to do with the timing of the use of bevacizumab. We can come back to that. But I think the real point that I wanted to talk about was how do we manage venous thromboembolism in patients with gliomas? I think these patients ought to be managed as we would manage any other patient with a VTE. That is, the presence of a brain tumor and the use of bevacizumab should not be contraindications to anticoagulation. And I think in the brain tumor population, anticoagulation can be very safe, assuming a patient has not had a substantial intracranial hemorrhage at some point. The other thing that happens at outside facilities, if a patient gets a filter placed, he or she may have a filter that is not compatible with MRIs, and then a patient comes back to us not able to undergo an MRI, and so our ability to follow these patients is impaired. In addition, they lose eligibility for clinical trials if they can't get MRIs, and not to mention the fact that the filters can clot off. So I think there are several reasons to avoid an IVC filter if it's safe to do so. So can you bring us up to date with this man? He is now on anticoagulation. He's actually doing reasonably well. He is continuing on bevacizumab, to which he's had a nice radiographic response and has been able to get off of his steroids. So he continues on treatment. Any bevacizumab issues, hypertension, proteinuria, nosebleeds? Yes, there's hypertension, nosebleeds. We have not seen significant proteinuria in this gentleman. We follow his urinalysis. We follow his urine protein creatinine ratios. So from that point of view, fortunately, he's fine. Fatigue is a substantial issue probably the major quality of life issue with bevacizumab, at least in our experience. I've heard about that fatigue. Any sense of the pathophysiology? No, Neil, I don't know that there's been any data that's really sorted that out. Some find a will understand fatigue, both from bevacizumab or fatigue from cancer in general. The only thing is, you know, the only group that I've really heard about fatigue and bevacizumab has been the CNS people. You don't hear people talking about that in colon cancer and lung cancer, et cetera. I'm not really sure. Could it be a cytokine thing? 
You know, it probably is something like that. Yes, that's probably as good an estimate as any. So yes, I think it probably is some kind of cytokine phenomenon. But it's interesting that compared to tumors that, for instance, metastasize widely, the tumor burden in the body for a patient with a brain tumor, it's a relatively small amount of tumor if we think of just tumor burden. So it's interesting. There must be something in the brain, some signaling that causes fatigue. And it's interesting to know that it's more substantial in our patient group, perhaps, than other malignancies. So what's the time sequence here? How long was he on the bevacizumab before the PE? And how long has it been since? Has he been back on it? Or was he on it the whole time? Well, he was on it the whole time. He had been on bevacizumab for approximately eight to 10 weeks at the time of his pulmonary embolus. So he continues on it now. He's still receiving benefit from it. So we're going to continue the bevacizumab until such time that he seems to be progressing or his quality of life seems to deteriorate. So how long has he been on a total now? He's been on it about six months. So usually when I think pulmonary embolus and bevacizumab, I think contraindication. Right. We used to say that, or we used to practice that either if they had any kind of clot, but then data emerged that anticoagulation in patients on bevacizumab was in fact quite safe. And so now we routinely maintain bevacizumab in patients who are requiring anticoagulation. Of course, you also have a situation of a pretty difficult tumor to treat, and it seems like bevacizumab has activity. What about recent arterial venous events, somebody with a recent MI, for example? Right. Well, now that is a patient in whom I would still be reluctant to treat with bevacizumab, and I would probably back off in such a patient. I'm not aware that there's been good data to say that bevacizumab is safe in that patient population. And so I would have concerns about treating such a patient. Can you summarize what we know right now about bevacizumab and GBM and how you think it's appropriate for an oncologist and community-based practice to be utilizing the drug? Bevacizumab has been tested in recurrent glioblastoma. Two clinical trials have evaluated in a randomized fashion bevacizumab with or without arenatecan. And the sum of these studies has shown that there is perhaps an improvement in progression-free survival, but no improvement in overall survival. And that's at the cost of increased toxicity with the addition of arenatecan. There's a lot of debate in the neuro-oncology community as to whether arenatecan should be used in addition to bevacizumab. My own bias is not to use it. So I use bevacizumab as a single agent because I think in this patient population, that is a patient with a recurrent glioblastoma, even though we are trying to aggressively go after their tumor, we're unfortunately in a situation where quality of life is probably the top of the list as far as what we're trying to accomplish. And I think the addition of arenatecan does put a dent in their quality of life. So I like to use it as a single agent. I should continue on the thread of what we know about bevacizumab. So bevacizumab is FDA-approved for recurrent glioblastoma. How about in the upfront setting? There have been some phase two trials looking at bevacizumab upfront, that is at the time of diagnosis. And at least preliminarily, those single institution small studies 
look encouraging. But the important clinical trial is now ongoing. It's RTOG0825, in which patients are randomized to radiation temozolomide with or without bevacizumab. This trial is a placebo-controlled study. It's going to be enrolling approximately 1,000 patients. And I think we'll answer the very important question of whether upfront bevacizumab actually produces an improvement in survival, progression-free survival, and quality of life. I think outside of that study, I would not use bevacizumab upfront. Many patients come to us asking for it, and those visits tend to be quite prolonged. But this trial should give us an answer to that particular question. So it's eagerly awaited. So if you have an intelligent patient who's able to understand to some extent the literature out there and says, you know, I really would like to receive this, I'll pay for it, whatever, will you say, you know, you're going to have to go to another doctor if you want to do that? No, I don't. I have a long discussion with them and I tell them that I believe that at some point in the course of their illness, bevacizumab will probably become part of their therapy and that we don't know yet whether using it upfront is better than using it at the time of progression. So that's how I have the discussion. I also encourage them to enter the clinical trial. That is the RTOG0825 clinical trial. And so we have that discussion and that usually works out and patients understand it. That's how I handle that situation. Any comments on palliative management of patients with GBM? Sure. They're neurologic symptoms, and those we manage with corticosteroids and bevacizumab. Other issues in terms of palliative management relates to the use of antiepileptics. I think it's important that patients who have not had seizures not be placed on antiepileptics. We find a lot of patients who are treated having no history of a previous seizure, And it becomes particularly difficult if a patient comes to us, say, a year out from their diagnosis, and the initial history of whether or not they had a seizure is unclear, and they will tell us, well, you know, when I was in the hospital for my biopsy or my surgery, I was put on anti-seizure medicines, and, you know, and here they are a year later, not really clear anymore as to whether they actually had a seizure, and then you're stuck. The point of it being that I think that patients who have not had a seizure should not be on anticonvulsants. There are a lot of quality of life detriments to anti-epileptics in terms of sedation, cognitive slowing, plus interactions with other drugs, and in particular interactions with chemotherapy drugs. So for instance, anti-epileptics that are metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system can substantially alter the pharmacokinetics of chemotherapy drugs. And those are important considerations in dosing. And in fact, a patient who is on a cytochrome P450 inducing drug, the dose, as an example, the dose, for instance, for arenatecan has been worked out, and it's approximately three times the dose in a patient who is not on an enzyme-inducing agent. So that's another palliative issue. In terms of fatigue, we will at times use methylphenidate or other stimulants, and some patients can have a very nice response in terms of their quality of life. 
So there actually are a number of quality of life measures that can be implemented. We don't know yet about the use of agents like memantine and other agents to try to preserve cognitive function in our patients, either with primary or metastatic brain tumors. So that's an area of active investigation. There was one other case that I wanted to bring up that I think will have some importance in terms of general practice. So this was a 63-year-old secretary who presented with headaches. She had progressive headaches, otherwise felt well, had imaging that demonstrated several enhancing periventricular masses, underwent further workup, CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis, all negative, was placed on steroids and had improvement in symptoms. So having no other lesion, having undergone a lumbar puncture, which was negative, the patient subsequently was referred for a brain biopsy. So on the preoperative MRI, the lesions were now substantially smaller. So the biopsy, however, was done. It was non-diagnostic. And so we now had a patient who had a non-diagnostic workup, still had this lesion. And so what we did, we tapered the patient off of the steroids with the idea that maybe we were dealing with a lymphoma and that at some point these lesions would reappear and we'd do a biopsy then. So this patient actually went for two years with no symptoms and no progression on MRI until finally, about two years later, these things did start to grow. She underwent a biopsy and was found to have a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So I think the important point of this case is that a patient who presents with a mass in the brain should not automatically receive steroids until we know what we're dealing with. I think secondly, the reports from the radiologist can come back in a variety of different ways, but I think that in the situation of a periventricular or multiple periventricular homogeneously enhancing lesions, I think it would be helpful for the radiologist to include lymphoma as part of the differential diagnosis in their radiology report with the idea that this may help the ordering physician to think, okay, this is lymphoma. We probably shouldn't be using steroids unless we really need to. So most of the time, these patients can be worked up quickly and can avoid the need for steroids, which can really hamper our ability to make a diagnosis. So I think those are important teaching points. We run into this problem several times a year where patients receive steroids without us knowing a diagnosis and being unable to make a diagnosis in that setting. Interesting. What's the current status of the patient? So the patient's doing fine. She received multi-agent chemotherapy for her CNS lymphoma and at the moment is free of disease.